The CIS critical security controls provide a prioritized path to improve an enterprise's cybersecurity posture. Version 8 includes some exciting updates to keep up with the ever-changing cyber ecosystem. The CIS controls are now task-focused and combined by activities rather than by who manages the devices, decreasing the number of CIS controls from 20 to 18. The 18 controls contain 153 safeguards, which you formerly knew as subcontrols. Safeguards are still prioritized into implementation groups, or IGs, with IG1 defining essential cyber hygiene. The updated CIS controls point to existing standards and recommendations, along with V8, supporting information, products, and services are updated and available to help you with implementation. Learn more about CIS Controls version 8 by visiting org slash controls. With your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Enter. What the hell? All right. Take care, brother. I'll see you next time. Hey, Chris, my man. How do you like the new biometric eye scanner we installed at the front door? Man, do you realize I've been coming here for like two years, man, and you still got to ID me? Listen, I hear you, but we don't discriminate. We authenticate. You know, we don't just let anyone in here. It's just validation, brother. That's scary, bro. Well, in any case, now that I'm validated, let me scan your drink menu. Oh, you think my eye scan is a joke, huh? All right, well, tonight, Chris, for a drink... I'm only going to give you two choices. You can take this blue drink and the story ends. You take the red drink, you stay in barcode, and you'll see how deep the biometric rabbit hole goes. Okay, Morpheus. Well, I just dropped a five in the parking meter, so I ain't leaving yet. Just give me the red one. Not bad. What is it? Ironically, it's called the red pill. Two ounce of pomegranate juice, one and a half ounce of bourbon, half an ounce of raspberry liqueur, one teaspoon of maple syrup, stir it, and drop it in the ice bowl. Squeeze in half a lemon, and finally, top it off with two, three ounces of cold club soda. Thanks, man. You know what? I actually see two guys down there at the end of the bar that I know can provide the true info on biometrics. <laughs> I told you, Neil. I'll see you next round. with Jeff Jokish, who is a titan in the data privacy realm with experience in privacy rights, privacy laws, data breaches, intrusion detection, as well as other areas such as cognitive computing, content development, and trust systems. 
He also co-hosts the extremely popular and just truly awesome Your Bites, Your Rights podcast. And I'm also here with Dave Burnett, who is the head of global business development at Zero Biometrics. He's a serial entrepreneur who brings global executive expertise and experience from private and public companies into the security, biometric, and digital identity markets. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. Chris, wonderful to be here. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for hosting us. Absolutely. Um, so yes, in cybersecurity, uh, one aspect that we all focus on and zero in on is authentication mechanisms um, and the, the risks associated with that. And biometric systems being one of those methods of authentication, which in turn raise both security and privacy concerns. So I want to discuss, first off, just the level set. And Dave, you may be the right person to ask this initial question to. Could you define what biometrics is and how do these authentication systems typically work? Um, yes, I'm happy to do that. And, and let's put some context around, uh, around biometrics and authentication and why there's been so much excitement about using biometrics in the first place. Um, so, you know, we all know uh, that, you know, name and password-based authentication is has a lot of risk associated with it, right? You know, you're, you forget your passwords to begin with, but almost every single data breach that has uh, had in, uh, any of any note in the last 10 years is inevitably linked to name and password breach. Um, it could be the result of a phishing attack. It could be the result of, uh, you know, uh, unsecured credentials, um, any number of ways, but it's a very, very common attack vector. Um, and so biometrics, which is the process of recognizing you based off of what you look like or what some part of your body looks like, has gotten very popular. You know, it's fast. Uh, it's fairly convenient. And the way it works uh, is that, you know, a picture, uh, let's just talk about face, a picture is taken of your face, um, and then it is digitized. Um, the term is, it's, uh, it goes through a binarization process, and that's saved. Then when you come back to authenticate with your face, um, then another photo is taken, it is binarized, and then it is compared um, to the first photo. And if there's a match confidence up above a certain threshold, then that's considered to be a probabilistic match and you pass. So it's, it sounds really complicated, you know, but in fact, the use experience is, is very elegant and it uh, prevents a lot of the problems that we all know to exist with name and password. And you mentioned what you look like. So I'm envisioning facial recognition or um, retina scanning, or something along those lines. What about fingerprints? Is that classified as biometrics? It is. And in fact, the reason why I say that it's a picture of you is, and even though it's easy to think that that means face, frankly, it's any of face, iris, palm print, and fingerprint. Because what a fingerprint sensor is really nothing more than a, a flat, planar camera that you touch and then it picks up a picture of what your fingerprint looks like. And then it goes through the same basic process that I described. 
And, you know, that process as, you know, it was, and the design that I described was invented back in the 60s, originally for, for face authentication, but the same model applies to other, what we call biometric modalities, that's iris, voice, finger, face, etc. Um, but one thing that's important to remember is that it was invented back in the 60s. And if you recall, there was no internet back then. And if you wanted to hack a system, you had to have physical access. Uh, and it hasn't, that architecture hasn't adapted to the present day, um, where we have these mobile devices and cloud-based services. And this data about you, this, uh, this uh, data, is, it's very, uh, it is very sensitive data. It's personally identifying data. And in order to make these systems usable, um, you have to wrap an enormous amount of security around them. I'm curious, um, from your experience, where are you seeing these biometric systems implemented and, and how, uh, how rapidly are you seeing these biometric authentication systems, uh, evolving into, to mainstream? Um, that's a great question. And I, let me step back and answer your question from a very, very big picture view, right? So up until, um, you know, about seven years or so ago, uh, biometrics were largely restricted to highly sensitive installations or locations where you wanted uh, to do uh, basically physical security access control. Um, this could be a room at a hospital where you store drugs and, and various medicines, or it could be a military facility. It was that it was really primarily targeted for access control, and then biometrics came to our mobile devices, our, our smartphones when Apple launched the first uh, iPhone with the fingerprint sensor. And that started a whole craze in the industry because every Android vendor had to, every Android smartphone vendor had to add a fingerprint sensor to their phones. So that was like the second big wave in biometrics. The third big wave really got underway around the COVID time period when we all had to work from home and how you would onboard new employees uh, in a COVID environment where you couldn't go into the office and you couldn't show identity proofing documents. Um, the, that started a whole new wave of services that use biometrics to compare your face to a photo on an ID document, a passport, a driver's license, and so forth. So those are the three big waves. And now you're seeing the technology extend into many other use cases. Like I booked a hotel uh, reservation uh, in Palm Springs a couple of months ago. And the hotel that I booked at wanted to see my driver's license and take a picture of me to verify my identity before I could complete the booking. It's, it's becoming very, very common. And it's only going to become more common uh, in the next few years. Very interesting. Um, yeah, I'm definitely paying attention to to the uh, the evolution, and it is becoming a lot more aggressive. And you know, with that, Jeff, I want to switch over to you for a moment. You know, as a privacy expert, based off of what Dave has described thus far, you know, what are some of your concerns in terms of the uh, the data privacy implications of biometrics? Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, well, the biometric waves that, uh, that Dave's talking about, to, to give you a bit of, uh, uh, a bit of scale, uh, the 
facial recognition industry generated about $5 billion in revenue last year in, in 2001. Um, so it's growing really rapidly. Uh, the projections are in five years, it'll be at about $13 billion. So mm. sort of massive growth. Um, also, there's really much more than just facial recognition and fingerprinting, which really gets all of the, the attention. But uh, I made a, uh, a sort of a database last year of the different types of biometric indicators, and they're really close to like 40 different ones. Uh, some, you know, sort of, uh, sort of on the edge, but uh, quite a bit of different ways that you can be tracked biometrically. And we won't sort of go into those because that's not really the, the subject matter here, but it is sort of amazing the different ways that you can be tracked by, by your biologicals, I guess. Um, so to get sort of more to the point, though, there, there are a lot of different concerns with uh, people being tracked by, by, by facial recognition and by biometric data. Right now, 80% of the world's governments and 70% and of the, the world's police forces use facial recognition tech in some kind of way. And only two countries in the world have banned it, uh, Belgium and Luxembourg, and they're pretty small in terms of population. And so the real problem is that while the technology has gotten better quickly, there are still some problems with bias and with accuracy. Um, You'll hear a lot of vendors say that their accuracy is like 99.9%, but that's generally in the lab. It's not in the field where, you know, shadows and bad cameras and bad techniques and different things like that actually happen. Um, you know, NIST found a few years back that, that it was pretty bad in terms of bias. I won't really go into those sort of statistics, but even in, in terms of accuracy, it, it's pretty bad. You know, I think it, it, normal use cases is about 10% uh, in terms of uh, false positives, I think, in the field, if you just look at some of the studies that have been out there. Um, and the problem is, is that, you know, as these face templates are collected, a lot of companies will tell you that, you know, they have really great security. And that probably is true. but you're collecting you know biometric information and that information if it gets leaked is is really bad i mean somebody can potentially you know find out who you are and depending upon what information that is connected to they could get into your bank account they could find out that you're in witness protection they could find out you know how much money you make they could and you know, they could assume your identity they could find out that you're you know all kinds of different things, right? Depending upon how, what kind of information that face is protecting. And because we think it's very safe, we're tending to use it to protect really important information. You know, there are, are political dissidents and, and people in, in third world countries or even in, in other countries that, that have a lot at stake. And if we're, if we're using these things in government databases, um, to protect our taxes like the IRS wanted to do. Um, it's really pretty scary that, that this stuff is not 100% foolproof. Yeah, if I could add on to that, because um, I, 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 I so I, I incredibly violently agree with Jeff on the points that he's making. You know, I think there's a, a kind of a, a transfer uh, of believed safety from our mobile phones, which we generally believe to be safe, 
and we've gotten very comfortable with the use of finger or face on our phones, uh, that we kind of transfer the idea that, okay, if, a, if my bank or if my government is wanting to use my face for authentication, then it's probably safe too. But that is really a very bad assumption to make, you know, because it, it just because a company claims or government claims that the data is secure, it doesn't mean that that's true, right? It's incredibly hard uh, to make a system that cannot be hacked or broken into. And it's there, it is just, we've been lucky as an industry that there hasn't been a major uh, biometric breach outside of things like OPM and, um, and that, that biometrics are not being used as attack vectors um, uh, for uh, breaking into our accounts yet. But that will happen, especially if we continue to have uh, models like face, like traditional face and traditional finger, where, where biometric data is kept and therefore can be stolen. Is that biometric data stored as an image or is it stored digitally as ones and zeros? And, and I guess what I'm getting at is if there was uh, an attack to occur, um, what does that look like in terms of, you know, breach data? Are the attackers retrieving the actual fingerprint of someone or is that um, encrypted in some way or does it really depend on what system you're looking at? It's an excellent question. And let me, the best way to start the answer, and frankly, we could spend an hour on all of the specific ways uh, to answer the question. Let me just start with what a biometric company generally sells, right? What they sell is the capability to take an image, face, finger, palm print, what have you, uh, turn it into uh, you know, a, a binary object. And I don't, when I say binarization, I don't just mean ones and zeros. I mean a, a format that will help it do matching, right? Matching like literally faced, you know, a human readable photo to human readable photo. Um, that's, that's outside of what these systems can do, right? They all do some sort of transformation into something that a computer can more easily process. However, these transforms regardless of what some vendors may say, those are not one-way transforms. Now, they are, by and large, they are all reversible back into source image data. And there's a lot of academic research that shows that. So they sell you the technology to take image data, uh, transfer, transcode it into a format their system recognizes, and then will match on. That's it. Any security beyond that is up to the buyer of that technology. So if I'm making, let's say, a padlock with a fingerprint sensor, the fingerprint sensor vendor doesn't sell you anything to keep your biometric data secure. It's 100% up to the implementer, of the designer of that lock, to keep your personal data safe. Same with banks and that might use face recognition, for instance. Uh, they have to provide all of the security and for the biometric systems that they enable for their customer use. So there are many, many attack vectors uh, that, that, are, are, that can be uh, leveraged against these systems. One is, you know, there would be a hammering attack where you try to hammer the system over and over with a synthetic face or a known face. 
Um, there are other attacks where if you break in to the back end of the system and you steal template data, um, the, the biometric, that's what these files are called that save the biometric data. They're referred to as biometric templates or templates for short. Um, you, can, you can steal them from one company and then use them to create an account at another company and then, uh, and then uh, log in. Or even worse, you could substitute the template for Dave by stealing it from one bank uh, and then injecting it into another bank. Now, I, I probably should, I want to interject here. Th these attacks are not easy, right? Um, but as computing power increases, they're going to become easier and easier. And so it really depends upon who implements the, the security and stuff around these. It, it, it's always a matter of, of risk, right? We don't know what the risk is. And in, in, as a consumer, we're not privy to how much risk we're actually taking. We don't know. And, and that's what's really, really scary. Yes. And while Apple has done a fantastic job of publishing white papers around their security architecture, um, you know, they're unusual um, in that respect. You know, it's I, I, you know, while some companies may also have done something like what Apple's done, you know, it is not there's no law and there's no there's no public pressure on any organization that uses biometrics to publish their their uh, security architecture that's protecting your data. Yeah. Uh, it might be it might be good to actually uh, talk a little bit about public perception of facial recognition tech because it's it's a little bit all over the board and I don't want to I don't want to co-op the conversation but I think this is sort of crucial. Um yeah, I want to throw a couple stats out if that's okay, Chris. Absolutely. Um so so here's a few, right? Uh, sort of randomly, right? Uh, about 68% of Americans say facial recognition can make society safer, right? About 30% of adults say it's acceptable for companies to use facial recognition to monitor employee attendance. About 70% of adults think facial recognition can enhance security systems and are comfortable with using it at workplaces and schools and places they visit. About 76% of Americans support facial recognition uh, technology to identify child predators. So those are all sort of positives, right? But then um, just one in four Americans believes that the federal government, well, and there's a couple more positives. Only like 25% of Americans think the federal government should limit use of federal uh, facial recognition tech. And 60% of Americans are okay with using facial recognition tech if it's right 100% of the time which of course we know that's not true, right? right. But then on the opposite side, 81% of consumers are concerned about misuse of their biometric data. And 84% of people would support federal regulation of facial recognition tech, which seems to be the opposite of what I just told you in a couple other stats, right? And 95% of Americans feel that they should have the right to opt out of facial recognition systems, which they generally do not have. So yeah. the, 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 I think the way a lot of this stuff gets phrased when people are asked these questions really changes how they perceive these systems, whether they think they're getting more security out of it or whether they think it's a privacy problem. And I, not to overcomplicate things, but I think how people answer those questions is also somewhat dependent upon what they imagine 
that the facial recognition is doing, right? So I would respond very differently to some of those questions if I was being asked about a, a security camera on a public street that might be doing face authentication on me as I walk down the street. That's a, that's a public setting um, where, there's, where my, my facial image is being compared to, you know, potentially a very large list of faces uh, that are on some sort of a, a watch list somewhere. That's, uh, but then I would respond differently if the question is around me using my face for connecting to my bank or, the, or a government agency. Some, in some scenarios I'm going to answer the same way, but there, there are very different ways that these systems are used. Generally, like the street scenario is a one to, what's called a one-to-end search, where you're seeing a face and you're searching a large list of potential uh, face matches to see if I'm one of those people, but you, you're, you're really trying to identify me out of a population. And then there's, hey, we think it's Dave trying to log into an account. Let's see his face and check to see if it's really Dave, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's something we should point out here, Dave, is that that big difference between using your face to authenticate you, right? Where essentially the system really has just your face and it's comparing it to your face, right? Versus the system has uh, a million faces or a hundred million faces or five billion faces and it's searching your face trying to find a match within that massive database. That's surveillance, right? That's more what they call facial identification rather than facial authentication. Yes, and the, the, but there's an important footnote here, and you're, you, you, you hit the nail on the head about the distinction, Jeff. The interesting thing is that, that by and large, any solution, face solution that you, uh, that you acquire from a vendor to do authentication, that same technology can be used with the same data set for surveillance, right? So if, I've, if I'm a bank and I have 10 million customers and I've got 10 million faces, the, the same tools that I use to authenticate a person to an account could be used to just do a search on all of the templates that I have for all of my 10 million customers to see if this one person is one of my customers by face. That's a deduplication example, but it's the same surveillance concept. So I'm going to go down a rabbit hole here and ask you about the legal aspects. Um, where does the regulatory line get drawn in terms of law enforcement tapping into these databases for um, you know, use in the court system. The, the police are using it a lot already. Uh, and they generally, well, it sort of depends whether they need a warrant. Generally, they already have the data. Um, it's not like, I don't know of any cases where they're like going to Bank of America and saying, hey, we want Dave's biometric data. Um, but what they have been doing is things like going to uh, hospitals and saying, you know, grabbing the DNA, which is not necessarily face data, but like grabbing biometric, uh, biological data from blood samples from a child that you might be related to and using that to potentially identify uh, perpetrators. And so I can see that that might start happening with facial recognition data, though I haven't actually heard of cases of that yet. 
Um, Do you see a benefit, you know, considering all the data privacy and the risk involved? Do you see the advantages to biometric scanning systems or would you prefer to just go back to a, you know, a UID and password to, to authenticate? Do the risks outweigh the benefits? Well, I think, I think it's already a foregone conclusion that we're going to be using facial recognition. It's just, how do we make it safe? Um, you know, Clearview AI has already got 3 billion images in their database and they're already selling it to, to every, you know, law enforcement organization in the United States. And half of them around the world from what I can tell. Um, and there are lots of other organizations that are trying to do the same. So, I mean, there are laws that are trying to reel that stuff in privacy laws and, you know, like laws like uh, Illinois has a law called BIP of the biometric information privacy act, which even has a private right of action. And that's, what's keeping a little bit of this stuff at bay. That's why, you know, Microsoft and Amazon and Google have sort of like stopped doing some of their, their biometric um, research on facial recognition. But I think it's only a matter of time before, before they figure out a way around that um, and maybe a better way to do it, uh, maybe without biometric information, like what, what Dave's company does. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that that's really important to remember is that, you know, convenience of using any system, the more convenient you make it, the more it's going to be used. Right. So, um, and so biometrics have been playing a really important role in driving usability of a lot of different systems online and, and, and addressing a very, very significant issue around uh, password retention and data breaches that come from passwords. You know, I could do a quick search online at, on the dark web and get, get passwords that I've used from different organizations that have been stolen from those organizations. And every time that there's a theft of password data, that information is turned around and you see it in hammering attacks uh, where they're using that password uh, to try to break into your banks and other organizations that you do business with. So biometrics are, are really a valuable tool towards a safer online world. The challenge is that the model that has, that the, the design model for all, almost every existing biometric solution out there requires that you retain sensitive personal information. However, that's what my company is focused on, is a new approach to authentication where the biggest weakness, which is the protection of this biometric data, is fixed by not having any biometric data saved about you. And we rely upon a, a, a branch of mathematics called zero-knowledge proofs uh, to make that actually possible. Interesting. So it's still the, is it still the biometric concept where, as we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, you know, it's gathering that imagery of what you look like but it's not storing it? Or could you talk a little bit more about the technology? Absolutely. Um, uh, this is one of the things that I'd love to talk about, not just because I'm with a startup uh, that's focused on a new type of innovative technology, but because I've been in this industry for so long and really have to come up with, a, with better, uh, more modern solutions that address this, 
and do other things like record consent and give us more control over how our biometrics are used. So to answer your question, um, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, traditional biometrics is essentially take a picture, you know, save it, take another picture of, of you when you're trying to authenticate, and then compare it to the original picture that was taken. Again, face, finger, iris, doesn't matter. It's the same concept. What we do is we look at your face with our technology. Um, the company name is Zero Biometrics, and our face product is called Zero Face. And when we look at your face, we do something radically different. We start by identifying of a number of places on your face where there's interesting and distinguishing biometric features. We do not save what we see at those locations. We just save a map of a kind of where are those features located on your face. And then we generate what's called a zero knowledge proof, um, which is a hash value of what we would see at that at those locations if it's actually you. And hashes um, are an important cryptographic concept where you take some data and you transform it one way, and it cannot be reversed back out into the original data. So we save a formula that describes your face. Uh, sorry, that describes where the interesting things are located on your face. And then we store a one-way transformation of what we would expect to see. And then when I come back, it takes that data, it applies the formula for my face to whatever face is presented. And if it's actually my face combined with my formula, the system will recreate that unique value. Um, that is, you know, as I mentioned, it's, it's not reversible back into any sort of image. And that is how we match. We don't compare faces and probabilities. We, we generate, we get a hash that's a long string of numbers uh, that just for your face, it's a unique value. And then we, when we authenticate you, we generate a new string. And if the same, if the strings match exactly, then it's you. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I assume that the uh, the false positive rate would be much lower as well, correct? Because you're only looking for those, I guess, unique attributes. It, yes. In fact, this is one of the interesting side effects. Um, and this happens with a variety of different technologies, right? Like it, it can even happen if you're writing, like back when we were all, you know, in school and we were writing papers. It's all happened to us where we write something and then we accidentally delete it. And then you have to write it a second time and you wind up writing a much better paper than if you stayed with the uh, with your original draft. Um, mm. Either stress, of course, when you lose it, but you wind up with a much better paper. <laughs> That's exactly the experience that we had when we implemented ZeroFace. We got an order of magnitude improvement on the uh, on the most important data, the mo the most important measure, which is how likely are we to incorrectly identify someone? Meaning, you know, if Jeff. Uh, tries to log into my account, how likely is it that we're going to make a mistake and allow Jeff to log, Jeff with his face to log into my account? Normal measures uh, for face are, you know, are one, a good face system will be, you know, one in a million, one chance in a million. There, there's one particular vendor that's doing some really good work and they've gotten it to one over, uh, you know, uh, 125 million, I believe. Fingerprint, hold on, 
Fingerprint, believe it or not, fingerprints only, usually it's at one over 50K. Best case, it's one over, you know, a uh, hundred thousand, but that's not very common uh, that it's that good. Our implementation, we're at one chance in a billion that we're going to mistakenly recognize the person that's being presented for authentication. One in a billion. That's, that's unheard of. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And with no um, data saved, right? I mean, we right. literally don't know what you look like. We don't save anything about what you look like. And this is such a radical claim that we went out to a, a national science uh, agency uh, in Australia, uh, the, the companies uh, based in, in Australia and Singapore. And we, we had uh, their scientists, essentially it's the U.S. equivalent of NIST. Uh, for any of our Australian listeners, this is a CSIRO. Uh, in Australia. Um, and they validated all of these claims and our science and our numbers. So not just a validation of these numbers, the, the performance claims, but the basic science and the claim that we don't know what you look like. Now, pardon my ignorance here, but what if I just had a picture of this person and I, and I held a picture up? Like what is distinguishing a real person from a picture when you're talking about facial recognition? That's an excellent question. And I assume that you're using this to describe a scenario where you might be trying to, to break in to a system. Correct. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, so several things. And, and frankly, all biometric technologies, uh, well, most of them at least, but, but Jim, all the ones that are popular have some form of what's called liveness detection to defeat what are called presentation attacks, to both detect that a presentation attack is happening and then to defeat it. Um, and the, the actual technology varies by the modality, but several things occur. Sometimes there are, and it's very dependent upon whose liveness algorithms you're using. Um, in some cases, they do things to, do, to look to see whether they're looking at a two-dimensional planar object. Um, they, in some cases, look for artifacts that would indicate they're watching a video replay, let's say on a phone that you're holding up to your PC camera. Um, there's other types of analysis that go on, uh, much of which is very proprietary to the companies. Uh, but the, fortunately, there are some uh, consensus tests and standards around uh, biometric uh, presentation attack detection. So even if every company says what we do is super secret, uh, how we do our, our methodology is super secret, there are, there are fortunately basic uh, standardized tests that these companies have to meet in order to claim accreditation for their uh for their attack detection and the only reason i ask that is because i've seen it done i've seen it done with an iphone and i think it was an older version older ios version um but i've actually seen someone you know have a picture and be able to unlock an iphone with that method that's surprising i mean because the it, maybe it was a face solution on an iphone as opposed to apple's own face id solution you know, because Apple's Face ID is actually pretty sophisticated, right? I mean, there are ways to spoof it, but the the the, the thing, and actually, this is a pretty uh, pretty important point to make, right? 
um, the the there's no solution that is uncrackable, right? There's no solution that can't be defeated with enough time and energy. And especially if like with an iPhone or, or an Android device, if you have physical control over the device itself, the whole point is to defeat the stuff that's easy and make it really time consuming. You don't want any of these attacks to be scalable or they can be run, you know, against a large population all at the same time. And you want to make the, 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 the thieves or the attackers to have to work pretty hard, right? So, so right. a photo is too easy, right? If face systems could be routinely hacked by just holding up a printout of some photo uh, that you find on the web, that would, be, uh, that would be a massively risky scenario. Um, fortunately, that's not the case. And Apple's Face ID takes it a step further by using infrared lights and dot projectors to, to look at your face in 3D. Um, and then they layer in a bunch of other security characteristics. So they've, while it can be spoofed in there, but the, um, it, the expense that you have to go through to actually defeat it is, is quite significant. You know, in fact, the cost of the attack is one of the measures that's used in these certification programs. You know, like, you know, you must defend against these different types of attacks. And, you know, the the attacker can't spend more than two hundred dollars in materials to defeat the attack. So, Jeff, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, would this approach help you sleep better at night? Uh, yeah, to some extent. I, I didn't know about the uh, the cost of materials thing. That's pretty interesting. I think it's it's, it's sort of interesting how Dave talked earlier about um, a lot of solutions are not not necessarily integrated. So if a bank or another organization is buying a solution, they might you know buy a facial recognition here, but the you know the liveness detection or the security that they implement might be you know, something that they bolt on. Um, and, and each of those different pieces um, could be good or could be great. A, a lot of them are getting better. I mean, some of the liveness detection is amazing. And, and even some of the security things are getting better and better. Um, you just have to worry about is the, you know, if somebody does get access to that information, if the organization isn't taking good care of your data, uh, if the information that you're protecting with that data or is connected to that data is particularly vital, um, if they can get into that data or other data that you protected with your face in another system, what does that mean for, for you, right? Um, it's still pretty scary. Um, I, I'm, very, I'm very happy that, that the industry is getting better and better, but it doesn't make me sleep well yet. Yeah. And, and let me add on to that. You know, part of what's interesting about our company and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm mixing the blend of, you know, uh, being speaking as a neutral industry observer and the fact that I'm just passionate about what we do with this particular company um, is that in our system design, we started with a whole system approach, meaning we don't just deliver a biometric piece and we don't just deliver a piece that is, uh, that is privacy preserving by not saving your face data. We start with fundamentally different design assumptions. You know, biometric vendors typically just give you the biometric piece, whether it's safe or not, or that's up to you, as we've discussed. We actually deliver a system 
that defends against data breaches, and that assumes that whatever company buys our technology, that they are that they are um, that they are not going to be able to resist professional hackers, and that data from our system will get stolen from whatever customer has deployed our technology. And so we built layered defenses in all aspects of our stack to, to defend against this, this, some of these risks that we've talked about and to insert a, a, a variety of privacy-sensitive controls. For instance, we enable the user to say, you may only use my, my, uh, my zero-face data for 30 days or for six months. And after that, you might lose the right to use that information and the system will not continue to use your zero-face data for authentication. It blows up beyond that time period. We can also limit it to only being used at a specific organization or, or heck, even in, in, uh, at specific physical locations. So that if someone tries to, you know, suddenly authenticate you from Russia um, and use your zero-face data to authenticate you from Russia or any other location that isn't a normal one for you, um, that, uh, that, that, that the system will just reject it. Um, there, there's many, many other layers of defense um, and anonymity that we build in because, of course, you know, we don't want our technology to be used to violate your personal privacy much less your location. Um, we, we're really trying to both make a safer system and return more control to the people that really uh, are generating the biometric data because our face is our property until you start to use it for authentication. And then suddenly, you know, everyone starts to think that somehow they have a right to use your face, right? And that's, that's just not the case. We, we need to resume, we need to move to a model where we control our biometric data and how it's used in the world. And that's one of the many things that's different about our solution. Yeah, Dave, I love what you're doing. And I love the fact that, um, that zero biometrics is developing this, you know, revolutionary solution with security and privacy in mind as well. And, and you don't often see that with, you know, cutting edge tech. So I'm really happy to, to hear that. Plus you got Jeff Jokish on your side. <laughs> you know, usually the, the biometrics technology people and the privacy folks are on other sides of the fence. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. You know, one of the things that's, uh, that's sort of funny about this is that as I sort of became a believer in the zero biometrics uh, uh, solution, it really, it really flips your mindset because if you can actually trust um, facial authentication, if, if it really is a hundred percent safe because there's no biometric uh, data stored. It really opens up so many different possibilities for what you can do, because then you, if you're not constantly worried about your data being stolen, the all the different ways that you can actually apply facial recognition to different problems is, is amazing, right? I mean, that's why it's going to be you know a thirteen billion dollar industry. Uh, I mean, imagine a $13 billion industry and you had no privacy concerns. It, it might actually be double that. Yep. And there's no compromise in usability, right? So it's all the convenience 
with, you know, a, a radically changed security architecture. And in many ways, more convenient because, you know, you know, like, unlike today's world, where if you've got a device that has biometrics, like your phone, you, and let's say your PC and your tablet, you have to enroll three times, uh, one for each of those devices. Um, you know, we allow you to authenticate and enroll in one place, sorry, enroll in one place, and then push that uh, enrollment data to all of the other devices that you use, um, and to do it safely which is something that is just very, it's, it's not safe to do that with traditional biometrics. So we're coming up on time. I do want to say that this has been a learning experience for me. And um, I thank you both for sharing your knowledge here. As we escape the, uh, the matrix of biometrics, I'm going to call this the, the biometrix sort of what I feel like I'm in right now. <laughs> I need to ask you both. Um, where are you based geographically? Uh, I'm down in South Florida. Okay. And I'm in uh, Redwood city, California. Okay. Coast to coast. Um, Jeff, I'll start with you then. Since this is barcode, what's the best bar in South Florida that does not use biometrics to let you get in? <laughs> I'm going to have to fail you on this one, Chris. I'm not much of a drinker. Okay. Um, but there, there is a really cool uh, music venue that serves uh, drinks that I go to a lot called Terra Fermata. Uh, so that's probably what I'd recommend. Awesome. Yeah, it's really, it's really a great place. All right. Uh, uh, this is a, a question that I just am thrilled that you're asking it. Um, I, I actually do like to go to uh, bars in particular, as I, my job, as you might imagine, has required a lot of international travel. And so wherever I go, I always find that town's tiki bar um, and literally all over the world. And I've got a collection of mugs from you know every country that I've traveled to where I've gone to the obscure tiki bar in Paris or in Prague or in Hong Kong or what have you. And here in the Bay Area, my favorite one there, because there's a lot of tiki bars here in the Bay Area, um, is Dr. Funk's uh, down in San Jose. For me, it's a little bit of a drive, but, uh, but wow, it's just a great drinks, great ambiance, you know, great food. Um, yeah. Nice. It's a, it's a, it's a great, uh, it's a great escape from, uh, from daily life. So traveling internationally, I have to ask, um, best tiki bar worldwide. Oh, that is such a hard question, <laughs> right? Because what you start to get into is like, Okay, um, is it, because none of these places are are you know tourist draws, right? I mean, these are all mm. it's always locals um, yeah. at these places. So the question is, you know, how how interesting were some of these places? So okay, first of all, like for me personally, like if you just want like the most off the hook tiki experience, um, it's you know it's it's um, it's the Tonga Room in San Francisco. Right. Because where else do you have a pool in the middle of a tiki bar and a band playing on a boat floating around on the island and it rains every 30 minutes or something? <laughs> OK, I mean, that's just ridiculous. Um, uh, but, you know, I think my favorite, um, my just kind of personal favorite was the uh, and I, the name's escaping me, but was the, the tiki bar that I went to uh, in Paris. Um, the, just because it was such a local scene and there's, you know, it's so, 
especially in Paris in the summertime, you know, the, many of the locals can be a little bit disdainful of Americans, but everyone at the bar was super happy to chit chat and talk with someone from a different part of the world. It was, it was just a great, friendly, engaging experience. Um, yeah, that's that, those, those are my two top faves, I'd say. Best tiki bar I've been to, and I don't go to, I don't seek out tiki bars, but I do go to one in, um, in Vegas called Frankie's Tiki Room. Ah, uh, that's a classic. Oh yeah. Yeah. But next time you travel for business uh, or just even personal travel, right? It's, it is, it is, you are guaranteed that it's going to be a locals experience wherever you go. Right. Uh, yes. if, if you go to a tiki bar. Right. Sports bars. Who knows? I mean, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, sometimes really highly rated, you know, mixology type bars or speakeasies. You know, you'll, you'll get uh, international folks wandering through. But I I have I don't know that I've ever met an American uh, in a tiki bar anywhere else other than the United States. So hmm. it's, you just read it's a total slice of local life, whatever good or bad. Right. Uh, it's a total slice of local life. Well, I just heard last call here. Do you guys have time for one more? Absolutely. All right. If you opened a cybersecurity or data privacy themed bar, what would the name be and what would your signature drink be called? Uh, for me, it's an easy one. The, the bar would be um, with this theme, right? I actually, I keep talking with my wife about actually opening a tiki bar at some point, but, but in the theme that you're talking about, it would absolutely have to be named Enigma after the German encryption machine, uh, they used um, right. And then, you know, I, I, boy, it, it would be, uh, you know, the, the drink would have to be something like, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, the, the memory obliterator or something like that. So that, you know, a drink strong enough to make you forget all your passwords. Right. Yes. <laughs> Hammerhead would be good. And then it's the, the, the drink that will make you uh, forget all your passwords. So, you know. And get hammered. And you're getting hammered. Exactly. And it's a <laughs> nautical thing, too. Most tiki bars have a good nautical component to them. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about the name of the place, but I think I, I would. Uh, I'd like to, to do a drink called uh, the, the Encryption. Okay. That uh, really just locks your brain up. Nice. And that could be scary because you don't know what's in it. <laughs> right <laughs> it'd be different each time exactly yeah <laughs> all of the ingredients are a protected secret right? <laughs> <laughs> i like it hey jeff dave thank you so much for uh for stopping by um again i appreciate all the knowledge before we go let us know where you can be found online uh i'm uh at uh, privacyplan.net and uh, also, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn uh, pretty much any time of the day or night, uh, which is a little sad, but true. Uh, yeah, uh, the best way to contact me is uh, through the company, uh, and that's uh, Zero Biometrics uh, with an S dot uh, com. And of course, LinkedIn as well. Uh, David Lee Burnett on uh, LinkedIn. All right. Well, awesome, guys. Thanks again. Be safe getting home and I'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it, Chris. You take care. Thanks so much, Chris. As you know, Barcode is where security and IT professionals hang out after a long day. So get your message front and center to our fans by sponsoring an episode. 
learn more at the barcodepodcast.com slash sponsor. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.